a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Nathan Romus with you. Today, we are going to be talking about failure and success with a more nuanced discussion on homelessness, addiction, and police relations. For that, I have Joe Roberts here. Joe's story includes the aforementioned topics because 25 years ago, he was pushing a shopping cart in Vancouver's notorious downtown east side as a homeless addict. Through perseverance, determination, and resiliency, he was able to overcome this period in his life. Joe now has an honorary doctorate from Laurentian University. He is the winner of the Courage to Come Back Award and recently awarded the Meritorious Service Medal from the Governor General of Canada. Joe, known as the Skid Row CEO, now runs his own company and conducts speaking engagements all over. Um, and just before we fired up, we were talking, uh, you were just uh, in Edmonton uh, doing a, a speaking engagement at McEwen University. So how did that go? Yeah, that's right. I, I forgot about that one. I was, yeah, I was, I spoke for McEwen and uh, got a chance to speak to the, the students and faculty. I was also there earlier uh, in the year speaking to the Edmonton uh, Fire Service. Um, mm-hmm. uh, again, sharing sharing some of my story and how it relates to first responders. Yeah. So, how um, before we get into your your background. How busy are you right now? Like, you, so you're you're doing quite a bit of traveling. I imagine you, are you still based out of BC? Yeah, we live in South Surrey, White Rock, and yeah, we're just we're running wild right now. Since you know the lockdown and four years mm-hmm. ago forced everything to go online, so I set up a studio in my house and did a lot of thought leadership, workshop training, stress burnout. You know, I'm a guy who talks a lot about resilience. Yeah, so there was a lot of work. For, for anybody who worked any kind of frontline, teachers, healthcare workers, community support folks, law enforcement. Um, but now, you know, the, the we came back together um, and the U.S. opened up for me. I did a bunch of big things down there. I spoke for the FBI and A, spoke for the International Association of Chiefs of Police. I spoke for CIT. Wow. Uh, another, a, a couple of big, big, big national associates. So we're doing lots and lots of work on it. And law enforcement, first responders, it's one sector. I also do financial services. I work with teachers. I work with healthcare. I work inside any kind of social worker that has any kind of link into mental health, addiction, homelessness. So yeah, we're, we're, we're real busy. It's this, it, what is it? The 17th, 18th, the Dece- 19th of December. 19th. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm still going hard. I'll go hard up until like Friday afternoon and then we'll pull the plug for, for a week <laughs> or two. It's good. It's it's all purpose-driven stuff. So for yeah. me, I, I haven't needed to work in 20 years. I this is something that I um uh, I created. I said, this is the work that I want to do. This is the work that has the most meaning for me. Okay. And I can take this lived experience and have a leadership impact. Both, you know, at, at the executive leadership with inside police, fire, ambo, whatever, but also how how that then trickles down and impacts uh, boots on the street. So, and it's an important story. I think it's a story that unfortunately doesn't get told well and and often mm-hmm. enough. It's a story of what happens when it goes right. Yes. Yeah. And I think that there's some really important things to talk about. How do we, you know, how do we? How do we continue to move that conversation forward on community safety and wellness, both internal and external? How do we take that story that's mine and sort of replicate that? Yeah, and we'll certainly get into that because um, I, I have a lot of questions around just kind of the implementation and what your thoughts are on some of the current narratives. Um, do, I wanted to ask, though, do you, like you're doing all these speaking engagements, do you get nervous when you go up there? How do you feel when you're doing half these? Because those are some big organizations. Yeah, it's funny too because cops used to just scare me because they're just they're they're non-responsive. You talk, and it's not that you're not connecting; <laughs> you're connecting, but they're not going to give you nothing. They're just arms yeah. folded, glare. But I know that the power of the message speaks to yeah, absolutely. Every single time, every single time I get up to speak, you know, you you deal with imposter syndrome and everything. But 
There's a lot of things that I do in life that I don't want to do, but I know that the payout is, is better. You know, exercise. Yeah. Who wants to get up and exercise at five in the morning and go for a run? In the, nobody wants to do that, but the payout on the back end is it's improvement in your mental health, improving your well-being, it's, it, you know, extends your longevity of life. And exercise for me gets me ready. Yeah. I'm ready. Like endurance, I play around with endurance sport now and long run, long bike, that kind of stuff. And it just teaches me so many things about how to, how to play a long game. So, yeah, I mean, it's tough sometimes getting in front of, I did CIT in Detroit and there was 900 people in the room. Wow. Big spotlights on you and they read your bio. And funny, I was in the back. They told me I had 15 minutes, but then I hear my bio being read. So I'm putting a battery pack on and, <laughs> you know, and I, and, and I walk out. And, but afterwards, people come up and go, dude, I really needed to hear that today. Mm. And that for me is, you know, if I can go, go in there, touch, move, honor, inspire people for the incredible work that they do, champion that. And, and, and then for the skeptics, the folks that you know, may, may see a guy like me and just get them to shift it a little bit. Yeah. To see it through the lens of empathic curiosity. It's like, what happened before that happened? This is a change how we respond to these. You have to hold people accountable for, for this poor behavior. You've got to do yeah. that, right? But it's looking at saying, okay, you know, this is what's going on. This is how I'm going to respond to this. But asking that question, what happened before that happened? Because this guy just, just didn't land here one day from outer space. How did he get here? We ask those questions, then we can go upstream yeah. and begin to actually change things systemically, right? Well, I always say that, uh, you know, there's a bunch of systems that have failed somebody before, usually before police have to deal with them yeah. uh, in, a, in a criminal capacity, you know, maybe in a negative sense. But, you know, your parents come first, you have an education system, a health system, you know, it all has, it all has an impact. It all plays a part in, in turning you into the person you, you are, um, along with personal responsibility, though. So people do have to be accountable for their actions. Um, so maybe we'll kind of get into your story and just talk about yourself. So if you could tell people where you come from and a bit about growing up, uh, what home life was like for you. Because this is a, a very, I watched your video online and uh, people, I'll put the link in the episode description. They can go there and check it out. Very impactful stuff, but uh, please uh, go ahead. Yeah, I think the, the Reader's Digest version works. It's, mm -hmm. I grew up in a really normal lower middle-class family, an hour and a half north of Toronto, a little place called Midland. Mom's family, my mom, my, her dad owned the radio station. Dad worked at the seatbelt factory. For the first eight years, my life was like a sitcom, you know? It was perfect. Older brother, younger sister, tree fort in the backyard, fat little dog that did magic tricks. And things were perfect. I was loved, safe, protected. Then life, life does. And dad was taken from us way too early. He was 35 years old. And boom, just like that overnight, dad died of a heart attack. And that set, that set our family on a trajectory that would take us to some, some weird places. See, three things happened overnight. We lost our income. Mm -hmm. So we fell below the poverty line. My mom lost her partner in this relationship to raise three kids age five, eight, and 11. And she was, a young woman without, you know, without a, a career. She, it's not, she couldn't have had a career. She just it was the early 70s and she was following in the footsteps of her mom. So she was a, yeah. kind of a stay-at-home mom. And then I lost my dad, a guy who was growing up in his shadow. I felt safe, protected, loved. My dad was a hockey coach, baseball coach. He loved being dad. He was strict, but there. And would say things to me like, I love you, son. You can do and be anything. What happened next, but mom remarried relatively quickly. And she didn't do that as a <clears throat> way to besmeach my dad's memory. It was, it was purely economic. Mm. You know, she had a mortgage to pay and three kids. And the guy who came into the house next wasn't anything like my dad. He was a violent, abusive alcoholic. So I went from this father figure who said, I love you. You can do and be anything to a guy who'd say things like, you're stupid. You're dumb. You're a piece of shit. You'll never amount to anything. So I'm nine, eight, eight, nine years old, and I got two things going on. Trauma. 
We're, we're, we're beginning to just scratch the surface and understand the impacts of trauma. We see it for people who have worked traffic safety for 10 years and what they experience, what they have to see day in and day out. Yeah. You know, trauma, tra- that stuff just doesn't go away. You can't sweep that under the rug. And so what happened for me is I had the grief of losing dad and the ongoing physical, mental, and emotional abuse from my stepfather. And when my brother and his older friends invited me to, to use drugs, I joined. And I didn't join because I was being rebellious or I thought it'd be cool or I wanted to be a bad kid. I joined because I wanted to fit. I wanted to fit in. I wanted community. Yeah. Now think about how many times you've been inside a work culture where there's some garbage going on, maybe some racism or some crap talk. And maybe you don't partake in it, but you don't do anything to stop it because, gosh, you really like to fit in. You know, you don't want to be that, that guy, or that gal. Yeah. yeah. So anyways, I used for the first time and I went home and something magical happened. My stepfather couldn't intimidate me. He used to, he used to come into our house loud and aggressive. and Everyone would cower and run. And that day he came in and I remember just looking at him and smiling at him like a Cheshire cat. Because under the influence, he couldn't get me. And it was like, screw you, pal. For the first time in my life, I felt safe. I so understand why, why it's not maybe start drugs, but continue. Because it gives you a feeling of protectedness, of safety. In an uncertain emotional world. Think about COVID the last couple of years. When when we're dealing with all this uncertainty, we as human beings want want to alter our emotional state. We'll do that with food, we'll do that with exercise. Sometimes we got good habits. Exercise, great. Meditation, great. Yeah. Okay, but oftentimes the the go-to isn't. It's pizza or beer, or I'll smoke some pot, or I'll pop some pills, or I'll stay up till two in the morning scrolling social media. Or watching streaming services or nine, 19 hours of football on Sunday. We want to shift that emotional state, right? And that's, I found a way to cope in an emotionally uncertain world. It set me on a trajectory. By the time I was 15, I got kicked out of the house. At 16, I got kicked out of school. And at 17, I got arrested. And at 17 years old, you know, 15, 14, you know, I was getting into trouble with the legal system. I was, you know, just like I was never ever a threat, even on my worst day, I was never a threat to society. I was a nuisance. Okay. I just had high volume contact with law enforcement in the beginning as a teenager, just because I was non-compliant. You said white, I said black. You said night, I said day. I was rebellious. I hated authority. What were you using at this time? Is this just pot or are you getting in? Is it now, progressing into harder stuff? In the beginning, it was glue. It was solvents. Because remember, I came from a tiny little town, and this is the mid-1970s. So it was actually glue. Uh, and then, it, you know, by the time I'm 15, it was, you know, alcohol, marijuana, and then into harder substances, psychedelics, mushrooms, acid. And by the time, at, at, in my late teens, I decided to leave um, I I was now living in Barrie, Ontario. I decided to leave and go to Vancouver. It was 1986. The World's Fair was on. Expo was on. And I thought, you know, I'll go out to Vancouver. I'll, you know, get a a fresh start out there. Three and a half days later, I landed in Vancouver. And, you know, like so many kids who come from northern communities who land in Edmonton or who land in Calgary or who land in Regina or who land in Saskatoon or Winnipeg or Thunder Bay. I had no idea what that city had waiting for me. And I was basically a small town kid. I was, I was naive. And I landed in Vancouver and within a short period of time, the yarn just unraveled. I found myself uh, using uh, in very dangerous ways. Substances I was using were really you know, dangerous. So by the time I was like 19 years old, I was addicted to heroin pushing a shopping cart around Vancouver's downtown east side. What made you go to Vancouver? And like, I imagine you're going there, you're, are you finished school? Are you going there with any kind of job prospects or you literally just took the clothes on your back and just went? Yeah, you just kind of, just, I wore my welcome out in the small town I was in in Barrie. So 
with no opportunity left. Yeah, I just was kind of like, you make a mistake, you make another, you make another, you make another, and you think, ah, I'll go over there. It's in the recovery community, they call it the geographical cure. Mm. You know, so you kind of wore your welcome out over here. Well, I'll try that out over there. How Canada works is, you know, you don't want to go east. There's no, there's nothing, you know, no offense to Atlantic Canada, but it's like, you don't think of, I'm going to go to Nova Scotia to get a job, or I'm going to go to Newfoundland to prosper. Yeah. They're great places and they have wonderful people, but you think I'll go to Calgary or I'll go to Edmonton, I'll go work the oil patch. You know, or I'll go to Vancouver. And and at that time, what the draw was Expo. Hmm. Expo had a you know quarter million people a day going in and out of that fair. And it's also kind of the the place where the the bus takes you or the train takes you. Now I was in Alaska just uh, a week and a half ago working with the FBI and NAA up there, and I was saying, you know, where do where do Americans go when they want to run away from things? Yeah. And, it, you know, they all said Alaska because it is. That's that place where you go to say, I've had it. And I'm going to, you know, go up there and do a, have a, a redo. And so that's how what Vancouver was for me. It was. But I I naively came out to Vancouver thinking that it was going to be different. And I had moved away from my mom. I had moved away from my my extended family. I moved away from a high school that I could have integrated with. I moved away from uncles and aunts, friends. And the biggest thing I moved away from was oversight. Mm. Even though I wasn't living under my mom's roof, I had people's, people had their eyes on me. In Vancouver, I had no oversight. And I was exposed to a lot of really, you know, a lot of predation, a lot of a lot more criminal activity, a lot more dangerous drugs and ways to use those drugs. Yeah. And so, you know, within a matter of time, those mistakes compounded themselves into uh, a chronic debilitating addiction to heroin and chronic uh, homelessness and unemployability. And with that lifestyle came regular contact with, law enforcement and first responders. And I said earlier, you know, I didn't like law enforcement. I never saw law enforcement as a friend. In fact, it wasn't just law enforcement. I hated any authority like structure. I didn't like the government. I didn't like the high school teachers. I didn't like, I don't like anybody. I, I, you know, I wouldn't like the head waiter in a restaurant. And I didn't understand until years later, the people who were entrusted with the job to protect and keep me safe failed. And so I didn't trust anything that looked like that. Okay. And so, and that, and, and part of the sort of the, the, the cultural thing that you pick up on the street where, you know, it's that whole us and them. Yeah. It's very adversarial, right? It is it, to the point where your own safety could be in jeopardy, especially if you're, inside an institution you you don't want to be seen as someone who's making friends with the enemy yeah so to speak and and i'm sure the culture is can be the same on the other side of that as well it's like so it's it's yeah i i i find that interesting i've I've long shed those things and a couple big experiences in my life you know change that it it you know, I, this time of year is, is real special for me because it's a time when I had a, a huge breakthrough. You know, three days before Christmas in 1989, I was, I was in downtown East Vancouver in the downtown East side, and I was struggling. And I remember it was, it was three days before Christmas because it was my brother's birthday. And I was sitting on a park bench in the pouring rain going through opiate withdrawal. and. Just for anyone listening to this who doesn't have context, opiate withdrawal is like the worst flu that you've ever had in your life, mm. right? Hot sweats, cold sweats, pounding headache, dry mouth, upset stomach, can't sleep, high level of anxiety, really, really low energy, except with opiate withdrawal, as opposed to the flu, you know that 10 bucks makes it go away like that. And I, I'm, I'm in this state rocking back and forth on this park bench, 
in Pigeon Park. And uh, I need 10 bucks. That's all I can think about. And I didn't want a Robbins deal because I was not. As never, ever a violent guy. It just wasn't my thing. Um, I steered clear of characters like that when I was out there uh, on the street. I just, they made, they made me nervous. And I, <clears throat> I didn't have a mean bone in my body. So I had to come up with what I thought was, you know, my best plan. And I walked into the bar across the street and I came out 10 minutes later and I'd sold the only item I had left in the world, which was the boots off my feet. And I remember that I'll never forget the feeling of hopelessness. Mm-hmm. When my foot, when my foot touched that cold, rainy Vancouver sidewalk in the downtown east side. I was like, like, where do I go from here, man? I was so backed into a corner. My entire life, I was taught. You know, the big boys don't cry. I was taught to stuff my emotions. I was taught you don't raise your hand and ask for help. You don't show your vulnerability. It's yours. You deal with it. And the heaviest thing I've ever lifted in my life was my hand for help. And in that moment, I, I asked for help. And I believe that in that moment, something happened. One, I became willing to do something different. And two, I became accountable. And I reached out and I said a little prayer and I asked for help. And I remember in that little prayer, I said, I, you know, I don't deserve it. I know I don't deserve it, but I'd really love a second chance. Give me a second chance. I won't waste the opportunity and I'll do something to pay it forward. <clears throat> the following day, I walked into a Salvation Army. They connected me with my mom. My mom flew out to Vancouver, hooked me up, brought me back to her house in, 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 uh, in Midhurst, Ontario, where I stayed in her basement. Now, mom. God bless her. She's she's 83. She's coming over for Christmas. She's 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 my my savior and my 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 knight in shining armor. But mom was not a social worker. So she could provide a roof and three squares and, and clean laundry, but she couldn't do anything with the trauma. She couldn't do anything with addiction. Mm-hmm. So my patterns persisted on and now I'm I'm off the street. So you know, many things have improved. But the reason I used what drove that addiction hadn't been resolved. And so I continued to drink and pill. And one night she came into my bedroom and I was despondent. And what she saw freaked her out. I was muttering something about hopelessness. And and sitting beside me on that bed was a a, a handgun. And she, she just lost it. And she ran out and she called the OPP. Now, I already told you, like, I didn't have a warm, fuzzy relationship with police. The last person I wanted to see was a cop. In my entire life, from the time I was nine to that day, police were always interrupting or disrupting my life. (laughs) You know, I didn't see them as someone who had my best interest in heart at all. So, but that night changed that. the officer called to that call was uh, Constable Scotty McLeod, Scott McLeod. And what he did that day is what is now being taught in critical incidents training, how to defuse mental health distress calls. How do we replicate that? He used his empathic skill set to defuse the very dangerous situation. Now, it is not hard to turn on social media or even even the television and see horrific examples of what happens in these situations where it goes wrong. Mm -hmm. We see them all the time. And my beef is we only see those. We don't hear the stories of what happens when it goes right across Canada, the United States, there might be 2 million calls today. Correct. How many of them go right? They don't, they don't make CNN. They don't make Fox. They don't, nobody cares that, you know, somebody's, life was saved because an officer interrupted or disrupted that person. I've stood in a stadium with 35,000 people in long-term recovery. And I guarantee you 95% of them have had their life disrupted by law enforcement, but they don't go back and say, Hey, you know, I really want to thank you for arresting me. Mm -hmm. Really want to thank you for getting, you know, for, 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 you know, having me face those consequences because as a result, 
I went here and I did this and I did this and I have 10 years sober today. Yeah. Scotty diffused that dangerous situation. And that led me to going into treatment, um, uh, detox, then treatment. And after six months in treatment, I enrolled at, this was that I went to Belleville. I, I enrolled at Loyalist College. And my life just took off. And I remember after a year sober, I wrote Scott a letter and I thanked him. I said, you don't know that. That call that night changed the path I was on. And I have a year sober today. Wow. And when I graduated college, I, I called him and said, thanks. You know, when, when my daughter was born, I called him and said, thanks. And when, when I had 10 years sober, my, my recovery community gave me a coin. And I was living back in Vancouver. I, I got on a plane. I flew to Barrie, detachment of the OPP. And I tracked Scott down and I, and I gave him that. And I said, you know, and he said to me, two blubbering idiots we were. <laughs> he said, I got into policing because I wanted to make a difference. The thing, that, the thing that I think about is how many stories, maybe not as whatever, as grand as this, but how many times we do good, but we don't get a knock on the door or get the letter. We don't get the attaboy, girl. You know, I, I think that one of the things that's missing from the narrative right now is, is, you know, it is for us to expose the good that's being done every single day at the hands of first responders, at the hands of, of law enforcement. And not just boots on the street, but at senior levels, too, because when you, when you climb up, you get, get into inspector, deputy, police chief. They stop seeing that impact of, of what goes on on a day to day. And so one of the things that I try to do now is to share that story. Um, I mean, the story forward is I graduated with honors. I came back to Vancouver. I got a job in sales. I absolutely crushed it. Um, business was easy for me. I mean, I had a hustle on way before <laughs> yeah. I was 20 years old. And I remember I got into business. This was funny. Yeah. All these salespeople were complaining about cold calling and you know rejection and wasn't that terrible. And I said, eh, you guys don't have a clue. You want rejection? Go get a piece of cardboard and try to hustle 10 bucks in front of the 7-Eleven. That's rejection. Hmm. You know, I've knocked on a lot of doors selling copiers. Nobody's ever spit on me. <laughs> like this is easy. This is not like it was like I saw the matrix. It was really easy for me. And I didn't understand why people were making making it difficult. I excelled. I had the ability to communicate. I understood a perspective of what a bad day looked like. And I was hungry. I wanted to put distance between me and my old life. So I, I just put in the, the work and, and things took off for me. And, you know, I, I left selling copiers about a year and a half later. And my friend was starting a company. I joined. And uh, we put our head down. We worked really hard. And five years later, I came up for air. And I remember walking into the office. We had the second... Uh, most successful media development company in, in Western Canada. And sitting on my desk was a copy of Canadian business. And uh, I was on the cover of it. Wow. In less than 12 years, I went from a kid being, you know, pushing a shopping cart, struggling with his mental health, homelessness, addiction, to being a celebrated Canadian entrepreneur. So here's the thing. When I tell business people that, I don't tell them what I'm going to tell you next. <laughs> All right. because it ruins it for them see i got everything that they teach in our western culture leads to happiness success and fulfillment and i wasn't i got the stuff i got all the stuff i got the money i got the accolades i got the uh, you know and i was pretty much all the goals that i want to accomplish in life were done before i was 36 and what hit for me at this moment this is around 2003 my daughter's born and when you have kids, things change your perspective on how you see the world, what you want to do for them. It, it, it just changes. And uh, I started to think altruistic. I started to think about impact. I started to think about legacy. What do I want to leave behind? Mm -hmm. I started to think about that promise I'd made on that street corner about paying it forward. And so I took a little time off, got bored 
really quick and started speaking. And I'd already kind of been dabbling in this, but I started going into high schools. I started talking to governments. I started talking to service groups. And I was working at this time. This is in uh, 2011. Um, I was working with this guy named Dr. Sean Richardson, who's a premier sports psychologist. Really, really neat guy. Um, He was an Olympic athlete, and then he did his, his doctorate. And today he works with elite coaches, athletes, and and uh c-suite anyways i was working with sean and we were going to conferences and companies tinkering with their culture and, and that sort of stuff and i was sitting at the front of the airplane going to calgary and i said sean i made a promise a long time ago to pay it forward to do something now being a psychologist he really understands sort of that early childhood stuff and he said well what do you want to do i said i'd love to do something to pay it forward you know, something to raise awareness on what we could do to better support kids so they don't fall through the cracks, so they don't end up on the streets homeless, so they don't end up gobbled up in gangs or gobbled up by the sex trade. And he says, well, when Canadians want to raise money, they run across the country. He says, Joe, he says, why don't you run across <laughs> Canada? And I says, uh, why don't you run across Canada, you know? Like the idea, of, like, see, you know, he's 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 the Olympian, not me. I feel yeah. I failed grade nine gym, man. I got I got kicked out. I got I did. I got kicked out. I failed grade nine. Got kicked out of grade ten gym. I was never a sporty kid. I found I found uh, sport late in life. Anyways, he says, okay, maybe you don't run, you walk. He says, Joe, you got a powerful story, and when you tell it, um, it changes the way people see things, and you you like doing that. He said, what if you walked across Canada? I said, well, how would it be different? He says, you could push a shopping cart. The symbol of homelessness is the thing that you're trying to avoid for every kid. And I said, oh, man, that's a good idea. And then he, he said, he said this, he says, you could call it a push for change. And it was like the hair on my neck kind of went up and I was like, OK, we got to do this thing. Yeah. You know, it when you hear, it, right? you know, a good idea when you hear it, you get that reaction. Yeah, 100 percent. And it was more of a visceral feeling. Now, logically, when I looked at it, I'm like, I'm a, you know, I was a 45 year old athlete or non, a 45 year old non athlete. I was 40, 50 pounds overweight. You know, I'd never done a 10K, let alone, you know, walk what, what turned out to be 9,000 kilometers for 17 months across the second whitest country on earth. So we had a lot of problems to deal with in the beginning. We had 27 show stopping problems. We had to raise a million dollars. We had to get, community partners on board. We needed to get me mentally and physically in shape. We needed to, there was just so many things that had to come together if this was going to be successful. But we went out, we built ourselves a a shopping cart and we slowly started to do fundraising. It it took us three and a half years to get to the place where we were actually ready to launch. And one of the biggest obstacles is we wanted to make sure that it was paid for before we took one step. because. I don't like campaigns that say, hey, donate to help this cause when you find out that 90% of what you donated actually paid for the event. Yeah. So we wanted to have the event paid for so that 100% of the money actually went to help vulnerable kids. And so that was a problem. And, and community partners was a big challenge. How are we going to engage in communities with this grassroots campaign? And again, this is where law enforcement came came into my world in a huge and powerful way because what we were advocating for wasn't emergency response. Yeah, we need to have a robust emergency response, but if we really want to help emergency response, youth shelters, Salvation Army, Union Gospel Mission, you know, what do you got in Edmonton? You got uh, Reach for, you got all these agencies. We want to put poor love on them. Let's stem the flow of people that are coming towards them. A little proactive approach. Yeah. And with kids, the research is clear. If you can help them get the support or deal with their challenges before they drop out of school and end up on the street, you got a better chance of having them successfully transition into adulthood and not fall prey to crime, criminal activity, sex trade, gangs, and pushing the shopping cart like I was. Mm-hmm. So, so we got around some really smart people 
guys like um, Dr. Stephen Gates from uh, Homeless Hub, who works at York University. We sat down with Raising the Roof. We sat down with Away Home Canada. We also talked to a lot of different law enforcement leaders, people who were also, you know, thinking about how do we, uh, you know, some of the stuff that's actually happening now, that community safety and wellness stuff. It's like, how can we lean into this a little bit better? And anyways, we got all that figured out, well, as much as we could. And finally, on May 1st, 2016, I started walking from St. John's, Newfoundland. And the idea was to slowly walk across the country, um, 9,000 kilometers. 17 months, 10 provinces. With We wanted to visit the Northern Territories as well, even though we weren't walking through them. We, we wanted to include it because they're all part of Canada. Um, and we had scheduled over 400 events. We ended up in 453. Mm-hmm. And so on May 1st, 2016, I started walking and it would take me 17 months. And, you know, the first five were really quiet. You know, Nova, Newfoundland, Nova Scotia, PEI, New Brunswick, and Quebec. The cities were great because, you know, you roll into Moncton and we had a whole bunch of events and things were great or Halifax or Cornerbrook or St. John's or, you know, Quebec City, Montreal. But it wasn't until we got to the border in Ontario where it really began to be a rolling boil. Um, I remember coming over the bridge not. Remember, I'd been walking for five months at this point. And I crossed the bridge and I looked down and there's there's about 300 OPP. Wow. And about 700 students welcoming me into the province. See, the OPP came on board as our community safety partner because they understood the community engagement value of this. They understood impacting youth mental health. Uh, and they were also really properly positioned to have us engage in all of those smaller communities throughout the entire province of Ontario. So I remember coming down the bridge and the commissioner at the time, Commissioner Vince Hawks was there to welcome me into Ontario. And then kind of hiding behind him was the greatest hockey dad in the world, Walter Gretzky. Oh, wow. And I remember seeing Walter and I just went, wow. <laughs> you know, I, I'd been walking for five months and Walter Gretzky, you know, to me, he's, you know, iconic. Yeah. And he'd come up from Brantford. He really liked what we were doing. And the Wayne Gretzky Foundation made a real generous donation to our foundation. And uh, it was a real special day. But every time I'm around a, a leader, I always like to ask a question or two. Like, and, and so I remember I leaned into Walter and I said, hey. What one piece of advice would you give me on resilience as I'm about to walk into Northern Ontario? And uh, he said, don't quit. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, geez, Walter, I was hoping for some of that Stanley Cup kind of advice. (laughs) (laughs) A big speech, yeah. Yeah, I I thought it was a little trite, you know. uh, But then he said it. He nailed it. He said, remember why you're doing it. Remember the kids. See, my story and the story of so many isn't different to most 14, 15, and 16-year-old stories, except most 14, 15, 16-year-old kids have the luxury of making a mistake or two without it costing them everything. Yeah. Yeah, you never know when that'll kind of come to bite you, I guess. You know that thing where you go where the kids play indoors and they can fall through the mesh? Yeah. They start at the top, and if they're... Yeah, if they're a small kid, they're going to kind of float down. It depends on how many things are there to catch them. For some, it's just an open hole. They make one mistake. They fight with mom or dad, and they say, to heck with you, and they slam the door in Edmonton, in Calgary, in Vancouver, in in Brampton. And out they go. What's waiting for them out there? As, As law enforcement, we know, you know what's waiting for them out there, a whole pile of predation. Mm. And, and youth homelessness isn't like adult homelessness. You don't see it. It's hidden. They'll, they're couch surfing. They're at the drug dealer's house. They're at their boyfriend's house. Maybe they're at some older person's house or a girlfriend's house. They're in some place where they're exposed, where they don't have that oversight. And what happens in those first 30 to 60 to 90 days can often determine the next 10, 15, 25 years of their life. 
Yeah, I would think uh, you're even more vulnerable at that point, especially because you don't have those life experiences. You don't have different things to fall back on. I mean, just physically, mentally, you're you're underdeveloped. You're not developed enough. So, I mean, that that's a hard path to go down, especially early in life. One of the things that I did want to kind of pick up on was you're talking about paying it forward. And I run a project with our McEwen University uh, created a course to partnership veterans with uh, police veterans with students. And to me, uh, this is like where you can make the biggest impact is with the students. Uh, ours at a university level, but I mean, it could also work at a high school level. Um, but it's getting those police veterans and those stories and those experiences in front of those kids because it's a little bit of a, a combating of the, the current narratives out there. Yeah. But it's also to show them like, this is in your community and these are the people there to protect you. And that's one of the reasons like I, I look to set that up, um, even doing like association work and different things. I mean, I think it takes, once you kind of find a place in life where you're comfortable enough, and even if you're younger, you got those things in place, you can then work toward paying it forward, right? You don't have to worry so much about yourself. You know certain things are taken care of on the back end, but you can work and and help others. So yeah, I really like that the piece you're talking about there. I think mentorship is so important. You know, I often say you read the bio and it sounds like I'm special. I'm all that in a bag of chips. I'm here today because of over 10,000 people. I'm here today because I was lucky enough to interact with Scott. Yeah. Another place, another time could have ended like that and it would have been two pieces of paperwork I, like i've worked with a lot of different law enforcement and now i understand the training that goes into use of force and that was a very dangerous situation right scott diffuses it and off i go but who then do i bump into social workers teachers educators the recovery community like there's so many people who who you know rubbed off on me and lent me their their wisdom and spoke to my possibility yeah you know you think about every you know if you've spent five years or more in law enforcement you're five ten fifteen twenty you think about who was the biggest impact in your life your first training sergeant that boss a friend we are all byproducts of somebody investing in our possibility See, the thing that I, I believe gets wasted the most in the world is human possibility. It's potential. Now, I'm that guy you would have walked by on the street and you would have rightly judged and said, there's very little likelihood that this guy's ever going to amount to anything. And that's a fair assessment, but that doesn't mean it's not possible. Yeah. Great coaches, great mentors, great leaders, what they do is they shorten the talent gap in the people that they're leading. They see what that person can't and then draw it out of them. Mm. That's why the coach in a football team or whatever, that's what they're thinking. That's how they're thinking. It's like, how do I take this group of people, take the talent that's here, bring it to here, and then use this strategy to go win the game? So... That investment in possibility, you're talking about that mentorship thing. I think it's absolutely, absolutely important. Yeah. So on that, I do want to ask, like, so, and this is a question that comes up all the time. I mean, we have a ton of politicians that have their opinions on how things should be done. We have the police services implementing, spending the, the budget on different services and, and how they think sh things should be done. There's so many people trying to solve these issues yet it it only seems to kind of be getting worse so what i'm wondering is uh how do we fix this like if you could have a message to all the politicians and, and the chiefs of police and um whoever else that you know the policymakers and the people who hold the money and the resources i mean how do we fix this i kind of have an idea of how i would answer it yeah, And it, it goes along the lines of right now, everyone's so divisive. As soon as uh, a political type says, we have to do A, A is the solution. Maybe police or someone else comes along and says, no, it's B. Just as a matter of 
well, you said this, so I have to say this. I don't think people are working together the way they should be. Yeah. So first of all, I would never want that job. And I don't, and I'm also very cautious to speak to this. Hmm. And and I'll tell you why. I represent homelessness and addiction from 32 years ago, not in today's climate. Mm -hmm. If I was out there today, I would put my odds lower at surviving Mm -hmm. just because of the toxicity. I I came up in a time where drugs were plant-based, marijuana, hash, oil, um, cocaine, and heroin. Today, you you could have a barn somewhere manufacturing enough doses to kill everyone in Canada. Yeah. So there's this there's this saturation. A great book out there, uh, uh, the Chasing the Dream or the American. It's by Sam Quinas. He's written two books and he explains very very well what happened. Okay. Yeah. Sam Quinas, the American Dream or something. Anyways, he he wrote one about how the oxycotton started the whole uh, opioid, opioid the Sackler family and all of that. But then he 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 took it forward and said, "What's happened after that?" Um, so there's this massive saturation of drugs. On top of that, you've got a, a housing problem. On top of that, you've got a mental health crisis. Then along comes COVID, and you're absolutely right, Nathan. The divisiveness. Now, divisiveness has been with us a long time. It used to be a lot more subtle. So one of the things that I see is. There's, there's so many well-meaning associations and charities out there doing work, but they don't collaborate very well. Yes, that is true. We, and sorry to jump in just real quick. The, I've seen this from my own experiences, working with some of the social agencies and the shelters and, and all those places. A lot of bickering goes on in, in and amongst them because they're also fighting for dollars too. It's, it's fiefdom. They, they, I'm an ED. I'm a director at a ABC. So I'll say something that Dan, and this isn't my thinking that I've had these ideas. I'm a capitalist. I'm a pragmatic business guy. I look at these social issues and say, if Amazon was in charge of this and they put a monetized metric on reducing social woes, be solved like that. Why? Because there's shareholder value now attached to it. Yes. So you hire somebody in for $25 million a year, some high CEO, you give them the resources and you clear the path and you use business thinking to solve social issues. The problem is politicians have a four-year accountability. So the life cycle to solve a 10 or 15-year problem, which is what you would need in almost any major city or province in this country, to solve these issues and all of those things have to work you know in collaboration and, and yes. unification uh there's a guy named dan palata he did a ted talk it's a brilliant ted talk because what he said was this um he said in our culture today in our business culture you could be the ceo of a video game company that rots the minds of teenagers and makes 20 billion dollars and you get your face on the cover of wired magazine and nobody questions that 25 million dollars that you make good for you way to be we're going to write a book about you but if you are the ceo of a nonprofit social agency and you want to get paid more than 100 200,000 dollars a year you're considered a parasite We think about this the wrong way. The problems that exist today cannot be solved by faith-based groups, by municipalities, and and by charities. I'm sorry. If they did, cancer would have been solved. Yeah. MS would have been solved. There wouldn't be any more heart and lung disease. I mean, give me a break. We've thrown millions of dollars at this. Why haven't we moved the needle? I'm not talking about just homelessness and addiction, mental health. I'm talking about all of these things. Why? Because we don't actually address them with a business mindset to to create long-term systemic change. You're right about the divisiveness. But I think that if you put, and and not to pick on this guy, because he's a a divisive guy, but if you gave Elon Musk and said, solve this problem, Mm -hmm. he would go, oh, you know, his Asperger's would kick in. He'd go, oh, okay, well, we just do this, 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 and this. And that's how we do that. And, you know, there would be a thousand people go, oh, but 
if you if you gave that responsibility now i don't know how to do that we're talking about a concept you know a way out there idea yeah but i mean some of the now so so if we park that and I, and i would encourage anybody listening go and listen to dan Pilata's talk because he says some incredibly brilliant things he was a guy who was in business who then got involved in the charity sector and went this doesn't make sense mm-hmm. why are we doing it this way and he talks about the scarcity thinking and just all the problems associated and it's why we continue to have these social woes with no accountability on solving them, and and they continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger yeah and you, you know and some some of your prior experiences when you're talking about um accountability piece you know what are your views now with some of the current narratives and bringing in your own experiences around police involvement in these mental health type calls in these um addiction issues in the homelessness because uh, in edmonton alone like we have a big thing going on right now about tents you know we have tent cities and who's moving people around who's uh knocking tents down who's uh, where are they going? Where are we, you know, telling people to go? Like you, you're talking about like your experiences with the police, and rightfully so. Like you know, you can catch a the wrong cop on a bad day, and you know they're not doing the right thing for the right reasons. But none of those positives are celebrated, and there are way more of them. You know, millions of calls a year across Canada. We don't hear about anything. One bad one happens. So it's context. It's yeah. context is everything. Mm. Take a look at what happened. Was it last year where they showed just the 14 second reel of the interaction with the Edmonton police officer and the person with the knife? Yes. They didn't show the whole video. Yeah. And then the whole video was shown and you realize that was a dangerous person that needed to be neutralized. Like that, what that officer did was textbook. That was perfect. So yeah, there's there's a problem with the narrative because the media money machine makes more money creating. Oh, look at this divisive story. So the, the only thing you see, <laughs> yeah. it is, and, and people are like, there's only two things on TV and social media: fear and outrage. That's it. Fear, and it doesn't matter whether it's the red channel or the blue channel. Mm-hmm. It's the Matrix. Pick a pill, blue or red. Because whether it's Fox or whether it's CNN or whether it's whether it's the conservative broadcast, blah blah, or it's CTV or CBC, it's the same stuff: fear and outrage, fear and outrage. And for years, homelessness used to be a political football. Now, law enforcement is is kicking around because it's it's good. It, it's it gets great. So all of this great stuff that's going on in cities like Edmonton and under the leadership of of Chief McPhee stuff that's going on, some of some good stuff that's going on with, with Adam Palmer in, in Vancouver, some of the great stuff that's going on with Niche, uh, Chief Niche in uh, Peel Region, these community safety and wellness programs, how they're leaning forward. I'm encouraged by them. I don't think I'm the right person to speak to. I think you need to talk to people who are a little bit more in the trenches, who are digging around with that evidence-based results. But the problem is, is that with the eroding social services, and an increase in homelessness, increase in substance use disorder, an increase in mental health, a decrease in, in suitable housing. Police used to be the call of last resort. Now they're the call of first resort. A hundred percent. So I don't know how many calls go into 911 for Edmonton Police Service. I probably would think it's probably over a million a year, maybe, maybe even two. What percentage of those is somebody having an episode at a Tim Hortons or somebody you know, like that are related to guys like me. So it, it's not it's not the work that police should be doing, but unfortunately is doing. Yeah. Well, and you know what? We're I had this conversation with I think it was when Chief McPhee was on last time, but after four o'clock, there's nobody really that is at work. Nobody is out there except the police. We have a few, uh, we have like our Hope Mission van and and they do good work, but there's like one of them. And how do we get more people involved 24-7 around the clock 
to offer these services. Also do know, like from talking to some people who've um, been involved in this world, they get a high rate of burnout too, working at the shelters, working with people in addictions. I mean, I could just imagine how many thankless days they get dealing with the person, you know, sitting in an office and the person. It's, 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 yeah, it's it's the trauma too. It's like Mm -hmm. you work, if you work frontline in downtown Edmonton, how many people do you know that died this year? Like I had a friend of mine, he worked at, I won't say where, but he worked in one of those shelters in, in downtown East Vancouver. And this guy's got a heart. Yeah. He's got a heart for this work. And he just had to tap out. It's like, like the, the third person this month they found deceased in their room. So yeah, it takes, it takes a toll. I honestly, I, I have to insulate myself from some of that. In early in my early recovery, I had been to five times as many funerals as weddings before I was 20. And now wow. the rate of mortality for somebody who is inactive using uh, you know, somebody who's struggling with substance use disorder on the streets today is like the turnover, the burn rate is just so high. And that I don't care how. You know how how many tools you have in your toolbox that impacts human beings. It impacts fire. It impacts police. It impacts people who work in shelters. Yeah, it, it's traumatizing. Yeah, I hundred percent agree. I mean, I I've been to many things. I was uh, in patrol for well, collectively between here and the RCMP for about seven years. Been in the gang unit now for five and a half. Everything's operational. Been to many of these things, seen many people. Uh, it's not even just death, but uh, I you go to all kinds of stabbings and shootings and um, just some of the real kind of decrepit, uh, morbid scenes you go to where people are, I don't know, just like at the lowest of the low. Uh, so it definitely has like you get those uh, I guess mental scars as you go along, right? And you get that collective buildup of all those little experiences. So it has a real impact. Um, one thing, we're just kind of coming up to the end of our time. I wonder if I could get your opinion. And, and I know, you know, your experiences are from several years ago, but I think they're still relevant when we talk about some of the, the stuff today. And if we could, um, in a few minutes here, get your opinion on just all this stuff about safe injection sites and and safe supply. I know they put the word safe in there. I don't think, I'm not a big fan of these things, but I'm wondering what your opinion is as somebody who has had an experience in this world, because I mean, I can't go find somebody who just is in the middle of it to give me necessarily a coherent answer. So you're probably one of the closest people to this that could give maybe a, a really nuanced or insightful answer to it. I, I have mixed opinions. Hmm. Um, there's really good data to suggest that uh, pieces of harm reduction work. Okay, but harm reduction is more than just safe. Safe injection, safe supply, um, safe you know needles, uh, safe pipes protect from uh, you know various different things. Just handing it out isn't. You're done. Your job's done. No, oh, no, 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 no. That's all good. Yeah, it's like it's like <laughs> Philip Owens, thirty-five years ago, was a mayor of Vancouver, and he came out with the four pillars approach. And one of the pillars was harm reduction. It's, we need to reform the way we look at this. We need to look at this more of a healthcare, a healthcare problem or a healthcare epidemic. You know, think about this for a second, okay? If you went to the hospital right now because of diabetes, heart disease, heart attack, stroke, or cancer, the doctor wouldn't ask you how much McDonald's did you eat or um, maybe we shouldn't pick on them as a brand, but how much fast food did you eat (laughs) or, you know, did you drink a lot of soda pop? Did you exercise regularly? And And then they would say, well, based on this assessment, you're on your own because these are lifestyle related based on your choices. Um, sorry, we can't help you. Now, we look at, uh, um, you know, substance use disorder, and it's, it's like if, if 
Most of this has got to do with an early childhood trauma that happened from sexual abuse, family conflict, uh, stuff that happened around or to them. There is a point where we have to hold people accountable, but there's also a point where we have to be empathic and understand, hey, what happened before this happened to put that person in a situation where they fall through easier than I do or you do? Yeah. Because my recovery is it's like the things kind of came together well. I, I can't take a lot of credit for that. I had that, 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 and that. So some pieces of the harm reduction thing I think are great. But, I, but it's a daisy chain and it's broken. It's like, we're going to do this. And just like any kind of policy, it's short-sighted. It's like, okay, but can we finish the sentence? Yeah, exactly. What about access? To access? We need treatment beds. We need investments in mental health. We need wraparound support. We don't just need housing. We need housing. And then for those very vulnerable people within our community, we need to get we need to get around them and give them everything they need so that they can be successful. So there's there's more to it than just that. And then the question I would sort of serve back is if it's your kid, what would you want? So every parent would say, well, I would want my child to live. Okay, so that's a vote for harm reduction. We want our kids to live long enough to hopefully they find the door. But do we want, I don't know, do we want to create a whole army of government junkies? I, mm. And I know that there's going to be some that listen to that and go, oh, oh. My, my story was there was stigma. And that stigma drove me into recovery. The consequences of my behavior were so painful that I made a choice to change. Mm. I think harm reduction can be a powerful thing if it leads to an exit, if it leads to vocation, housing, and a hand up as opposed to, you know, we're just going to throw our hands in the air and just give everybody free dope. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. And, and, I, and I'm really present to the fact that I don't, I don't have a horse in this game today and I'm not an expert and I'm not working the front lines and I have deep, 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 deep respect for those that do. So I'm cautious to just sort of spout off with my opinion. Oftentimes when we do these, Nathan, I won't talk about this stuff, mm-hmm. but I know that you want to go there. So for, you know, that's sort of my two cents. I think that just the stuff you just said though, is the reason why you're one of the best people to speak on this. When you say, I don't have skin in the game. And I've had this conversation about a lot of things where uh, I'll say, like, I'm just coming in with an objective view. And even if I had, you know, that experience long ago, now I have an objective view. And you're bringing balance to a world where, just as we were saying, it's very divisive. It's very polarizing. and you find a lot of people just say the opposite just for the sake of saying the opposite of whatever their counterpart was saying. And we're not actually working together to get to a solution. I mean, it, it, and even when you say like, you know, people want harm reduction. I want to, uh, um, I want my kid to live. Uh, the flip side of that would also be to say, well, I also don't want them to harm other people. So there's the accountability side where you need the police to come in. So um, no, I, I think honestly, you you are probably one of the most uh, balanced opinions I've ever talked to or uh, heard speak on this. Um, when I do post this, I'm going to tag the hell out of a whole lot of people. <laughs> so as long as they, they, you know, I, I hope the message gets out there. Um, we are coming up to the end of our time here. I said I keep you around an hour, so don't be respectful uh, of your time. Um, I if. You didn't have another point you wanted to say on that. Uh, I was just going to give you the opportunity to say projects or anything you got going on right now that you want to let people know about. Well, the the thing I spend most of my time doing today is impact speaking. So, you know, if anybody's listening to this, I, I do a lot of work with first responders and police, um, but it, it extends far beyond that. If there's something going on, um, that you need an, you know, an inspiring, impactful speaker like me, reach out. I can be found at skidrowceo.com. And I'd also encourage 
uh, everyone listening to connect with me on LinkedIn. That's Joe Roberts at LinkedIn. Uh, uh, Joe Roberts, uh, the Skid Row CEO at LinkedIn. And I'm constantly posting really, really positive stuff there. So yeah, uh, yeah, that's that's sort of me. I, I found that my greatest impact on the world is to try and share a story of hope, inspiration, and possibility to as many leaders as possible with the time I have left, and hope that that that's enough. You know. Yeah. Well, let me tell you, you are making a difference. You're having a huge impact. Um, I will post the links to social media and the website. I think the whole first half of our conversation was very impactful and honestly, probably one of the best recruiting tools police could use <laughs> is talking about the positive impacts and you know getting that recognition, having that real impact on people. So um, yeah, like really good job. Uh, uh, I'm thankful that we were able to connect on here. So um, thank you for coming on the show. Um, wrap it up right around an hour here. So right on time. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Nathan. Appreciate you.